Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are This is Karin Chabra here, and we are continuing our Annals of Surgery and Behind the Knife Journal Club series today with Dr. Susan Pores, who wrote the article titled Leadership in American Surgery, Women Are Rising to the Top, with co-authors Dr. Patricia Turner, Dr. Caprice Greenberg, Dr. Maya Babu, and Dr. Sarah Parangi, all of whom are female academic surgeons. Dr. Pores is the Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School and the Medical Director of the Hoffman Breast Center at Mount Auburn Hospital. She was President of the Association of Women Surgeons in 2012 and 2013. An accomplished writer and editor, she teaches the humanities at Harvard Medical School and is also co-editor of The Soul of a Doctor and co-author of Cancer, Biography of a Disease. She attended medical school and residency at the University of Vermont and completed her surgical oncology research fellowship at the New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston, now Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. And her clinical specialty is in the management of complex breast cancers. I'll turn it over to Shreya to introduce the, the paper. Absolutely. So... This paper outlines the progress we've made. Uh, women were not allowed to be physicians till the 19th century, and we did not have a female surgeon till the Civil War. We did not even have all medical schools open to women until 1960. And now we have reached a remarkable moment. There are over 20 women chairs of surgical departments, and the American Board of Surgeries Chair, and the ACS President, Chair of Boards of the Regents, chair of board of governors are all women. There are still problems though. Despite half of the medical school graduates being female, only 10% of full professors in surgery were female in 2015. You point out in your paper that the progress for ethnic minorities has been particularly slow. We had the first African-American woman surgeon in 1897, but still has, we have not had an American African-American chair of surgery. Some keys to success have been the formation of surgical societies and chapters dedicated to women, especially uh, societies like American Women's Surgery and the ACS Women in Surgery Committee. Sponsorship from established male leaders has also been a very uh, crucial uh, step in the progress. Going forward, you offer a few suggestions for improving diversity and inclusion. These include closing the gap in recruitment, uh, promotion, and funding among surgical faculty, community outreach at major meetings. For instance, at the WIS conference, there's a special session for high school students interested in surgery, reinforcement of female trainees that they can and should be leaders, broader view when selecting speakers, panel members, leaders, and awardees. Dr. Porries, would you like to add a big uh, summarizing step that we might have forgotten in this paper? Um, hello, and thank you for having me. It's a real honor to uh, have a conversation with you. Um, I think you did a great job summarizing the paper. We have definitely made a lot of progress for uh, women in surgery and minorities and uh, minority women in surgery, but we, we still have a long way to go. So I think it's good to sort of stop and take stock and celebrate our successes and then be very deliberate about 
what we can do to make things better in the future. Great. And Dr. Pores, could you tell us, um, A, what inspired you to write this paper, and B, um, how did you form this amazing team of uh, women leaders in surgery to, to write this paper together? Well, um, you know, I think a lot of people noticed that this was sort of a watershed year when we had um, women uh, at, at the helm of the Board of Governors, Dr. Diana Farmer, uh, the President of the American College of Surgeons, Dr. Barbara Bass, and Lee Newmeyer as the um, head of the uh, Board of Regents. And that just struck so many people as historic that uh, there have been some other articles written about this uh, in the Bulletin of the American College of Surgeons. And um, Saray Perenge and I worked very closely together, and she she basically came up with the idea and said, you know, we really should write a paper about this. And um, in terms of the other authors, um, Maya Babu, I've known since she's a medical student. She's actually going to be faculty at Mass General in neurosurgery, um, or actually maybe she's already started, but... Uh, so I've known her a long time, and she's a great example of somebody who came through and, you know, despite discouragement about, you know, women shouldn't be surgeons and women definitely shouldn't be neurosurgeons, she just plowed right through, and now she's got a a job at um, Mass General. Uh, Caprice Greenberg is somebody that I don't know that well, but Saray does, and uh, Dr. Greenberg gave a... Um, a masterful keynote address at, I think it was the Association of Academic Surgeons uh, last year or so, which you can look at on YouTube that was, or or look it up and read the text. It was very, very inspiring about women in surgery. Patricia Turner is the first African-American uh, director of, um, of services at uh, the American College of Surgeons. And she is an incredible uh, role model for women in surgery and especially a minority women in surgery. So, and I know her through the college. So we were lucky enough to have all these great people weigh in and give ideas. So, you know, reading the article, it's very apparent from the beginning sentence to the end um, that you're highlighting the positive changes that we've made in gender issues over the last few decades. And it's really refreshing given, you know, all the negativity that um, has been out there, even in the news. So, you know, our question is, do you feel that the surgical specialty is uh, being a leader is at the forefront for the whole medical profession as far as gender equity? Um, and if so, how do you think that we have come to that point where we are the leaders in, in gender equity? And what do you think we still have left to learn from other fields and how they are approaching the, the topic? Well, I don't know that we're leading the entire medical profession. I think a lot of uh, other specialties have also been very good at promoting women, um, Certainly OBGYN, pediatrics, uh, psychiatry, women have done very well in those fields, internal medicine. But I think all of those fields um, have suffered from the lack of women in, in leadership positions. And so I think um, one of the things that we've done right in surgery, and I say we, but, you know, it's really been a few people that have made the difference is uh, Patricia, Patricia Newman in particular 
founded the Association of Women Surgeons. I think it's uh, 35 years ago now. And um, she was just an incredible leader in bringing women surgeons together and inspiring them to help each other rather, you know, rather than competing with each other, but helping each other get ahead. And I think the Association of Women Surgeons has been a great um, tool for all of us uh, involved in it to, to move forward. And I don't know enough about all the other specialties to know if there are similar um, organizations in every specialty, but we have had a lot of people call us up and ask for advice, uh, women in otolaryngology and women from anesthesia and other different uh, fields asking us for advice on how they can do something similar because the AWS really has uh, been successful. You show that how many structures in surgery have changed over the last few decades to become more diverse, more inclusive. For instance, many of our leaders are now female and we have much more of an organizational focus on gender equity. Uh, do you think the atmosphere and culture of our field um, has changed as well? Like, uh, What has your uh, firsthand experience been in seeing how the field has evolved over the over the years well it's just been an incredible sea change in in the whole field of surgery in in terms of how women are accepted and treated and so forth i mean i hate to say how old i am but you know when i was um when i was a resident um there were actually rotations that we were not allowed to rotate to go through as even as surgical residents, like the um, orthopedic trauma service was not open to women. Um, and that was, you know, we didn't have any choice then. And actually at that time, um, surgical residencies were um, pyramidal. I don't know if you've heard that term or not, but pyramidal residencies meant that they accepted more interns then they could graduate as chiefs deliberately so that every year somebody would be let go and it was a way of you know encouraging competition between the residents it also had a way of squelching any complaining <laughs> because nobody wanted to get fired so now we have what we call a, um, a rectangular system where you know you the the programs accept the number of chiefs that they're planning on you know categorical positions is the number of categorical positions is equal to the number of chiefs that they plan to graduate so that's one big change and i think you know getting doing away with the pyramidal system made made it possible for residents to support each other instead of compete with each other um, as I said, there were rotations we weren't even allowed to take part in. And when I was interviewing for residencies, there were residencies that would not interview women at all. Um, and there were also residencies that would interview women but wouldn't take them, and that was well known, or that would take women, but they had a um, reputation for sort of torturing them and getting them to quit. So there were very few residencies that actually interviewed, accepted, and finished women surgeons. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in Vermont in the in a residency with Dr. John Davis, who was one of the first 
men in the country to really champion women as surgeons. Um, I think part of this was because he had a daughter that was wanted to be a physician. She's not a surgeon, but she did want to be a physician and is a very successful one. Um, but I think this changed his attitude about women in medicine. And when he came actually to Vermont from Cleveland, from Case Western, where he, he, uh, they had had the very first woman in thoracic surgery there. So there was a very good atmosphere in Vermont. And there were a lot of women that graduated from that program who become tremendous leaders. One in particular, Monica Morrow, who I'm sure you've heard of who's one of the most famous breast surgeons in the world um, and the chief of uh, breast surgery at uh, Sloan Kettering. So that became sort of the standard for for us at Vermont. And I never, once I started my residency, I felt that I was tr treated uh, very fairly. So that I was lucky in that way. It's good to hear that, you know, so much progress has been made in, uh, you know, over the last few decades and that you've been able to see it over your career. Um, I, I was wondering about sort of deeper gender biases that haven't gone away. I remember an article that came out earlier this year that show, that said that after a complication, uh, primary care doctors essentially blame the surgeon if they're female and they decrease referrals um, in, in, if, if there's a complication. But uh, when the surgeon was a male and has a complication, they didn't change the referral pattern at all. So what can be done about these sort of subtle yet pervasive biases? Do you think they really do still exist? And is there anything that we can do about them? Well, I, I saw that article too, and that is um, disappointing. And it probably is um, true that you know that in referral patterns that women are not um, forgiven as easily for for something going wrong as their male counterparts. It's a hard. I mean, it's a, a very interesting paper um, in terms of how to translate that into practice. I think that you know a lot of a lot of medical practice and surgical practice comes down to relationships. And, um, you know, I think if you work with your, you know, your, the referring physicians and talk with them, uh, communicate with them about any complications, explain what happened, you know, then I think those referral patterns should continue. Um, and uh, so I think a lot of those things are, uh, are, are things that we can fix by working on our relationships with the people that refer to us. I guess kind of along similar lines, though, um, not just with the referrals, but there's these implicit biases. And um, one of the websites that was actually brought up at a ground, Grand Rounds at my institution was this Harvard impl implicit bias test. And it's really interesting because even it, it kind of sheds light on um, how you um, basically these implicit biases that you're not aware they're not at the forefront of your consciousness and um and it's very it's been evident to me especially in residency as a um minority and as a woman um that these exist and that they really do affect how my day goes as a surgery resident how my work uh life is and i know that these have also affected these women that you've highlighted in the paper as um rising to leadership positions so to me 
uh, we've made such a great stride in putting women into leadership positions, but they've battled these, or I guess it's that, you know, you lose battles to win the war. And I feel like the now what we're facing is trying to win these battles of implicit bias or these kind of more subtle um, discrimination. So what are your thoughts on, you know, how we can address that? Because it seems, you know, if it's something not in the conscious mind of somebody, how do how do we address it? You know, those it, it's a very good point, and I would refer you to a really good article from the Harvard Business School written by um, Ibarra, Eli, and Kolb um, about um, the unseen barriers for women. Um, and it's true in medicine just as it is in, in business. So, you know, those those things are there, and, and they're, they're there for women, and they're there for minorities. And, you know, there are many stories about, you know, people walking into a room with the team and the patient and their family assuming that, you know, the surgeon in charge is the man, or that the minority who comes in their room, who's actually the surgeon, you know, they mistake them for the uh, for the orderly or the janitor or something. So, you know, those biases are there and they are something that we have to change. We have to fight every day and we have to change people's minds but um, and, and their perceptions. But it's not the kind of thing that we can change overnight. I think there are a lot of things that can be done. One is these new badges that are available that go behind your name badge. I know Mass General is starting to use them. I think a lot of other hospitals are, and I hope that we're going to get them at Mount Auburn. But it, it comes down a little bit lower than your badge, and it says the role. So it'll say, you know, for instance, Dr. Susan Poise, and then, un but that's sort of small and hard to read. Underneath it, it's going to say in big letters, surgeon or doctor. And then the same for the nurse or you know whatever the person's role is medical student resident so that it's going to be right there on the badge what your role is so i think that's one thing that we can do the other thing we can do is just simply even though it gets tiring to just explain to people and introduce yourself every time you come into the room uh, that's one of the things that i do is I reintroduce myself to my patients, you know, for instance, in pre-op holding, you know, hi, it's Dr. Pori's. Um, I just want to introduce myself because I know you might not recognize me in these, you know, scrubs and the scrub hat. I don't look the same as I do in the office. And um, just kind of introducing yourself when you come into the room and not be shy about it, you know. Hi, it's great to see you. I'm Dr. Pori's. You know, I'm the head of the team. Um, or I, you know, if it's a resident, I'm the chief resident. Just saying, you know, who you are, because half the time the patients, um, they don't mean to offend you, and but they're focused on themselves. You know, they don't feel well. They're confused. They don't know who anybody is, and they're just making assumptions. Um, and so we just have to educate them. I don't think you can get upset every time something like that happens, but just be confident and and educate them as to who you are. I mean, that's one kind of second generation uh, bias. There are many others, uh, you know, that are even more subtle, like 
you know, how do you get treated in meetings with your peers? Um, many times if women are outspoken, then they're labeled aggressive where a man might be called assertive. So, you know, those are harder things to get around. Um, and again, I really feel that a lot of it comes down to relationships, you know, working with your team in the operating room, working with your colleagues in the hospital, um, trying to, you know, let them know what your role is. And once you build relationships, once you get to know a little bit more about them as a person, then I think those personal relationships translate into better working relationships and hopefully people stop branding you with or treating you differently because of the way you look or your gender and start dealing with you as an individual. Um, those might sound s simplistic. I don't know. There, there aren't any really easy answers. It's just something that you have to work on. You know, we all have to work on over time. Absolutely. And this is something that, uh, you know, uh, you, you mentioned a very simple thing, just introducing yourself with Dr. So-and-so. Um, but that's, uh, you know, something that even as a resident, like I always in my day to day life kind of uh, get labeled as a nurse. And, um, it, you know, as much as I do not like to introduce myself as Dr. So-and-so, uh, I kind of have to sometimes just to, like you said, uh, like assert and correct the correct those biases in a very simplistic ways. Um, I uh, was going to follow up with another question for uh, regarding something that you mentioned. Again, a second generation sexual bias is an issue in your paper. Uh, could you clarify for our listeners what exactly you meant uh, by this? I think what I'm referring to is what we touched on a little bit is that uh, there are these assumptions that limit women, that those are things that are harder to fight, but that we have to, we really have to uh, battle those. So one example would be, and sometimes it's, it's other women as well, you know? So I think we each have to look into our own selves and see how we treat everyone around us and try to, you know, treat, when we have a chance um, to elevate other people. So let me just give you an example. Um, if you are have a new leadership position open, which sometimes will happen, for instance, in the Association of Women Surgeons or another organization, and you're trying to think, well, who should I suggest for this role? And uh, somebody will make a suggestion and then say, oh, well, you know, she's too young or she's got young children or she doesn't have time or she doesn't have the experience. Instead of saying, oh, you know, she might be great. Let's give her a chance. Let's see if she's interested, you know. And I think what happens a lot of times is we just make assumptions. Um, one thing comes to my mind about um, I had recommended uh, a young woman for a position um, as a surgeon in another uh, hospital where she was interested in moving. Um, she happened to be Asian and the, the, per, the chief of the department who was in charge of hiring said to me, well, I don't think a young Asian female is going to be happy in this environment. Well, that's that's sort of a surprising assumption for 
somebody to make. Uh, and I think that those sorts of assumptions we shouldn't make about other people. <laughs> let them decide for themselves. If somebody's applying for the job, you know, let them decide about whether they're going to be happy in that situation. Um, as we mentioned before, uh, you know, labeling people in a certain way, you know, that women are aggressive rather than, you know, using the words you might use for a man as, as assertive. So these are harder things to change, uh, but each of us can make a difference. So if you're planning a program, a panel, um, you know, making sure that you don't just think of your friends, but that you think of, you know, okay, am I using balance here? Um, am I thinking about gender equity? Am I thinking about any underrepresented minorities? Um, how can I, or even, you know, in terms of um, uh, whether somebody's uh, lesbian or gay, um, you know, including all of those people, giving them all a chance, because it really comes down to each individual be, being aware of their own prejudices and doing their best to try to be inclusive every time they have a chance to build a team, to invite people to speak, you know, whatever it is. And and I think it it takes a conscious effort. It doesn't come naturally because many times we do just want to include our friends or the people that we know or the people we were residents with. And, and we really have to work hard to be open-minded and give other people a chance to because it really comes down to each individual be, being aware of their own prejudices and doing their best to try to be inclusive every time they have a chance to build a team, to invite people to speak, you know, whatever it is. And and I think it it takes a conscious effort. It doesn't come naturally because many times we do just want to include our friends or the people that we know or the people we were residents with. And, and we really have to work hard to be open-minded and give other people a chance to. Uh, to, to, to step back and sort of think about this again on a, on a more positive note, you know, I know it is a challenge and it's certainly going to be a long process, but from my perspective as a, as a male resident, it seems like the move toward gender equity has led to progress for everyone, really. The increased focus on wellness, on work-life balance, and also our increasing intolerance of bad behavior, it seems to be a good thing for everyone. So does it help the equity and diversity and inclusion movement to think of women's issues as everyone's issues? I I completely agree with that. And I, I think it's such a great point. Um, for instance, you know, when we start talking about maternity leave, it shouldn't just be maternity leave. It should be family leave. And, you know, men, young men want time off with their, you know, new baby just as much as the, as the mother does. And men just want just as much to go to their kids' ballet performances or their sports games or, you know, the parent-teacher conferences is just as important to them as it is to the mom. So I think that's a great point. And then, like, the other things that you mentioned uh, in terms of work-life balance, uh, wellness, um, time to do the things that are important to you, whether it's playing music, playing sports, you know, going for a run, um, spending time with your family. There's, it's just as important to men as it is to women. So I completely agree that, uh, this movement towards a work-life balance, um, 
and uh, family leave options. It's important. It, it really elevates everybody. And I think it has been a benefit to men as much as women. Well, Dr. Porries, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this paper that's very relevant in this current time and um, love the positivity about, you know, the advances that we've made as women. Um, I did want to put a shout out in there for the Association of Women Surgeons podcast, um, where they interview some of the leaders that are authors of this paper and talk about some of these issues as well. And um, also like to thank Behind the Knife for supporting gender equity and adding Shreya and myself to the team this year, um, as that's been a great um, step forward for us as a surgery community as well. So thank you again, Dr. Porries, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm just thrilled to see, you know, young people like yourself entering the field of surgery, men and women. Um, we need surgeons desperately uh, throughout our country and throughout the world. It's such an important specialty. And um, it really is heartwarming to see, you know, such great young people entering the field. So I'll give you a lot of uh, encouragement and um, uh, really grateful for the chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. We appreciate your kind words. Until next time, dominate the day.